We'll open your scriptures with me to 1 John chapter 4, or we'll be continuing there today. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 21 this day, because he first loved us. We'll be reading from verse 7 to verse 21, though. I want you to think of something. Everyone here has raised children before, or is a child. If your child comes to you happily reporting their latest antics, latest success in life, and you reach out your hand for their head, what do they do? Do they flinch? I'm going to get hit? Or do they anticipate you rubbing their head and saying, good child, good boy, good girl? Which one? Now, when we appear before the Lord, how are we going to be reacting to him? Will we shrink back? Or will we be be able to go boldly before him? That is something to consider today. Let us read the word here, starting at verse uh, 7 of chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought so also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this that we know that we abide in him and he in us, because... He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because he is is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the encouraging words of love 
that the Apostle John gives us in this passage as he continues his teaching about love. And as we come to this, this perfect love, which God has loved us with. And Lord, we pray that as we consider this, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we might understand and we might receive these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, I'll apologize for my voice. It may come and go a little bit because of a cold. Well, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 21, finishing off the chapter today. And we have, in verse 17, 18, perfect love really explained what John is going on about here with the perfection of love. Now, keep in mind, perfect in this passage is a Greek word which can mean perfect in the sense that we mean perfect, but it also means completed. And in English, those are two different words. In Greek, they're the same word. So this is completed love or perfected love. And this, by this, love is perfected in us. A little confusing a statement at first glance. Whose love? God's love to us, our love to God, our love to our brothers. How is it perfected? Uh, The immediate context here is 13 through 21. And really, the preceding context, 13 through 17, is what helps us to see this. The two questions are really tightly tied together. Well, our love for God is proved to exist by our love for our brothers in verses 20 and 21. I think here the by this pass is referring to what's already been said, and that would be 13 through 17 which is focused on God's love towards us, which is demonstrated or made complete or perfected, depending on your translation, in a number of ways. In verse 13, it's because he has given us his spirit. A reference back to that great new covenant promise. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will move from you the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to keep my rules. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And I think all of those things are what's in mind in this passage. The giving us his spirit, changing our heart, causing us to be careful to walk in his statutes and his rules. And why did he do this? Why was this plan enacted and referenced all the way back in the Old Testament for something that was going to become part of the New Covenant? Well, because some think because he, he looked down through time and he saw that we would love him and therefore he decided that he loved those who would love him. No, not right. We love because he first loved us. Verse 19 of our passage today. You know, our love may be in response to his, but his love certainly is not in response to ours. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption of sons. 
through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. His giving us his spirit, his giving us salvation is done in his love. And having received his spirit, having received his love, having received that new heart that he has given us, we then will respond to his love with love. He loved us first. We now are able to respond with love to him, something we did not do before. Also in verse 14, we see that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. refers back to verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent his Son to die in our place, to appease his wrath for our sin, and God's love is seen in him doing that, sending his only Son, his beloved Son, and that love is made more complete, more perfected in us by it being applied to us by his blood being applied to us through faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. So it's seen in that, and we walk, if we walk in the light, John says, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, First John 1, 7. And so the cleansing blood of Christ is what, is given to us through the love of God for us. And that love in us then is what is being perfected, that we have been given it, we have been forgiven, and that is the completing of our love. It gives us a reason for this too, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. John has encouraged us to this confidence in Jesus coming before He says, now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practiced righteousness has been born of him. 1 John 2, 28 and 29. So the confidence we have here and now can also be at mind, and John has spoken of that, beloved if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. First John 3, 21 and 22. Which is why it says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews four sixteen. This confidence is this hope that we have in Christ at his coming is hope that we have now in approaching him in prayer, approaching the throne of God in prayer through Christ. What is it based on? Well, ultimately, that the, the evidence in our life, the tests that John has been giving us throughout this book, and the evidence of our life shows that we have put off the old self which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and that we've been renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4, 22-24, which is to be renewed 
in the spirit of your minds, Ephesians 4.23. It is renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit who God has put in us that we will be careful to obey him. So our confidence is in our obedience, and our obedience is evidence of the Spirit, which is the thing that prompts us to our obedience to God. Now, probably the most confusing verbiage in the passage today, which I have trouble even speaking, because as he is so, because as he is so, also are we in the world. What that's saying, and it doesn't translate from the Greek very well, and this is one of those times where I think a paraphrase would be helpful. What he is saying is the subject of an entire sermon we've already done in 1 John chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. He is a propitiation for our sins. That was how God's love was made manifest. We just read in verse 10. Not for us only, but also for the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments, that is, by our fruit. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whatever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected or completed. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, at the walk as he walks. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19, 2, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. As he is so, also we must be in the world, in this life. What that is saying is, as Christ walked in this life and gave us the example of his perfect holiness, his perfect obedience, his always doing what the Father wanted, always pleasing the Father, so too we should be in this world. That is how we should live in this world, pleasing God with our lives and with our works. John spends a lot of time making that point throughout the whole of the first epistle. And he goes on then to say, there's no fear in love. Fear here is not the fear of the Lord as we've been talking about in our Wednesday Bible study. That fear is the fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1 7. It's good for our soul. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. Psalm 128 1. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him. Psalm 103. John is not speaking of that reverent fear and awe of the transcendent and holy God, which is a good thing for us. That's not the fear he's talking about. That fear is always good. Here John is talking about the fear that has to do with punishment. Verse 18. Even that kind of fear, though, is not always bad. There's the old adage, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Okay, it's a song from a terrible TV show, but we won't go there. Uh, But it, it has... In effect, fear of punishment keeps people from doing wrong. Uh, It's proven, it's real. Fear of consequence keeps people from sin. Not just the godless, but the godly as well. 
Hebrews 12, 5-8 says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses your sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary of reproof by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Every son. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. It's good to fear God's discipline for our sin. If God isn't disciplining us, then we're probably not his children, because it says explicitly he chastises every son whom he receives. And if we despise his discipline, we're full. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So we should fear the discipline of the Lord for our sin. I think here, though, especially it's talking not just about discipline, but that fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, Hebrews 10.27. Fear of punishment is not a bad thing. But what he's saying is there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. What does that mean? Well, certainly there have been many bizarre and perverted ideas about this. I'm not going to be able to go into those today. I'll run out of time and run out of strength. I think I'll just stick to what does it say. (coughs) Our obedience and our confidence that comes from our obedience is, I think, what is at mind here. Confidence for the day of judgment, verse 17 which is proven by our love, our love for God and our love for our brother, which we'll get into in verse 20 and 21 again. Bottom line is, he's saying if you're afraid of God's wrath or his fatherly chastisements, your love is not perfected or completed yet, meaning you're failing in his tests and you're being chastised and you're afraid of that because you know it. When we talked about the fear of the Lord in the fear factor on Wednesday, that was one of the big problems, right? Why do we fear? Why do we not trust God? Well, we want what God doesn't want. We we enjoy our sin. We want to keep on in the way we're going, and we don't want to go in God's way. We don't trust him. Well, in those cases, we haven't perfected our love, because if our love was perfect, what does perfected love look like? Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Uh, John 14.15 and John 15.10. So, If we are dealing with our sin rightly, then we do not need to fear because we are loving God. But if we are not dealing with sin rightly, if we are living in sin, if we are endorsing our sin, if we are covering our sin, (coughs) if we are ignoring our sin, 
then we're going to have fear of God taking the things we want away or God punishing us. And thus, we don't have obedience. And obedience is equated to love. If you love me, keep my comm- you'll keep my commandments. And so we have fear because we don't have love, because we don't have the obedience that is love. Fear of punishment is overcome by that love. First, we can have confidence through the forgiveness and repentance of sins, through the propitiation talked about in verse 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. We can also be confident in our salvation. If we have the Holy Spirit working in us, our heart is new, our life is new. We know that God has done this. Then as Paul said, we can be sure that he who began a good work in us will bring it through to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. So we can have confidence. But a confidence based on our new life being lived in Christ, not confidence in our sinful life. If you understand what I mean. And we can be confident in all that Jesus has promised us and assured us of. He said, all the Father gives me will come to me, and I will, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John six thirty seven. If we have come to him, which is evidenced by our fruit, by having the Holy Spirit in us, by walking according to his statutes, by desiring to walk in the light with him, not in the darkness, by repenting of our sins, <clears throat> then we need never fear that he will cast us out. And that confidence is made stronger by the knowledge that it wasn't even in our own strength we came to him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will rise him up, raise him up on the last day. John six forty four. Not only was it not in our strength that we came, but it's not in our strength that we stay. We can be confident of his love for the elect being irrevocable. He has promised we can be sure. And so we don't need to be afraid. We don't have fear if we know him and trust him. If we are trusting in ourselves, if we are hoping in God's love being reciprocal, because I did good, God loves me. Well, when I do bad, does God still love me? This is the problem those who take the humanistic approach have. If God, however, has chosen to love the unlovable, to love the wicked, wretched enemy, the dead in their trespasses and sin enemy, then why would he not love me now that I am his child? Especially when he has promised that he will never cast me out. So we can have great confidence in this world because as he is, So also we are in the world. Confidence comes really from our Christ-likeness. But where does the love come from that makes that? I've already hinted at it. We talked about it last week. Is it because I did something good and God felt love for me and decided to save me? And when I do something bad, he stops loving me and casts me off? What does it say in verse 19? We love... We love God, we love our brother, 
We obey, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. We love, we obey, because he first loved us. The cause and effect. I want to rehash that objection to the doctrine that we've been teaching. Some have injected to the objected to the interpretation of Scripture concerning salvation being unmerited. Specifically, they claim that, yes, God loved the elect from eternity, because the Bible says that often enough, but therefore he must have foreseen their faith, because without faith it is impossible to please him, Hebrews 11, 6. The answer to that is... Not that complicated. First, remember, it is God's will we love our enemies, is it not? That we bless those who persecute us, that we do well to those who hate us. Jesus says that in Matthew 5:44. Paul says it in Romans 12:14. Nevertheless, there's nothing desirable in our enemies that can move us to love. Not even in the future. You know, we aren't given a future vision of our enemy when they become our friend and our brother and help us. It never says anything like that in Scripture. never implies anything like that. We love those wretched, godless people who persecute us, not because they will do good to us one day, not because we're paying it forward and they'll help us in the end, but because that is how God loved us. That is his command. There's nothing in God's command that teaches differently. We are to love them as enemies. And God's love is then said to be like that, because God has loved us the same way. God's love had its origin in God himself. He's the one who chooses whom he will love and whom he will not love. Though they were not yet born, though they had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Romans 9, 11 through 13. The motivation for this love didn't originate in man. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10, we love because he first loved us. Verse 19, God's love for his elect was not based on our actions, past, present, or future. It's based on his mercy. And if we understand that, we have far greater hope and joy and faith and hope in, in life, greater assurance than we could ever have without it. In fact, there can be no assurance apart from that. And so it is a wonderful and blessed doctrine. As Paul says, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, which would include faith, a work of righteousness, but according to his mercy, he is sovereign, he chooses. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, Titus 3, 5-7. It's solely his sovereign choice to choose one person over another to save. 
not because we earned it, not because we were more worthy than another. Indeed, in saving a man like Paul, God was showing that he wants to be saving the worst, the most wretched, to shame those who think they are good, to think they are worthy. God chooses the least, the despised, to shame the wise and the rich and the powerful. Thinking that we are worthy is not right in God's eyes. Paul goes on to explain in Romans 9 that the potter has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one vessel for dishonorable use? Can he not choose whom he will save and what he will do with them? Because he is the creator. It's a hard thing, and man doesn't want to hear that. Sinful man doesn't want to hear that. They want to hear, God loves me because of who I am. God loves me because I'm good, because I'm better, because I'm superior. Pride, pride of life, which John has talked about, is central in man's man's desire, even amongst the meek. <clears throat> so God's a God of infinite goodness and infinite benevolence and he chooses to love those who have nothing special to attract his love nothing worthy of his love and of course the greatest human ever born who's accomplished the most that's ever been done before God has nothing to boast about because he has nothing to offer God. He has nothing to give God that would earn God's reward apart from God's mercy. But the love of God towards man is different than the love of man towards God. Man's love is usually based on something desirable or lovely or attractive in the object of their love. We we feel something, we see something, we desire something, and so we love. It's often a lie, but it's the motivation that I'm talking about. We're motivated by those things. God's love however, is different. It comes before we are lovable. And in fact, God's love for us is the cause of our lovability. We love because he first loved us. The meaning there is God loved us. He gave us a new heart. He gave us his Holy Spirit. He transformed our life into the image of his son. He gave us even faith, the ability to have faith. And everything good in us is from a gift of God. And so his love for us came first, and then we become more lovable to him through the transformation that comes from him. Believers were from all eternity, beloved both by the Father and the Son. The eternal love of the Father appears from the fact that he, from all eternity, prepared a way to save our souls. 
He prepared and chose Jesus, his only son, to be our redeemer, to die for our sins, to be our propitiation, to take on the wrath of God due to us. And Jesus also was willing to come to die for us. In these two things we see the love of God proclaimed, the love of God shown. John has spoken of that. He says, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, John 4.10. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so conversion, glorification, everything that happens in that process was done for the believer because God chose to love us. He loved us first, and then we can love him. And that love for him is, of course, evidenced by our keeping his commandments and by our loving our brothers. Now, there are, and I've hinted at it a number of times, and I want to remind us, there are those two ways in which love is shown or love comes. One is that love of benevolence, where we love an enemy. We love the unlovable. And the other is we love because it gives us pleasure. And God's love for the elect was one of benevolence. He chose to love the unlovable. And we, we as his children would all understand that very well. Because he loved us, because he changed our heart, took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh, because of that, we were able then to keep his commandments. Because we love him and have been transformed by him, we more and more obey him. And in time, the love for the unlovable becomes the love for somebody who is lovely. As our soul is transformed, God is pleased with us more and more. And he has both the love then of benevolence and the love of pleasure and delight in his people, in his children, as they obey him, as we please him. His merciful, undeserved love came to us in election, in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and us being born again in the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. That love renewed and transformed us so that we now love the one true living God who we once viewed as our enemy. Now that we've loved him, we can have hope in him and confidence in the day of judgment, as John has said here in this passage. But how do we know that we have been loved by God? Well, I've been talking about it over and over again. John often uses little chiasms in his teaching, where he gives a topic, he gives the same thing again, and in the middle he puts his main point. And so my third point in many of these sermons is the, other, the same point repeated from point one, so they tend to be shorter. 
But here he's saying, how is how do we know he has loved us? Our perfect love, our love perfected or completed love. How do we know we have God's love completed in us? By the test that he's been giving us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. We've heard that two or three times already. If anyone says, I love God, every believer had better say they love God. Um, that's If you don't love God, then you're not a Christian. <laughs> so he's talking to all of us here. But as we've seen, if we love God, we not only need to say it, we need to live it in our lives. And we live it in our lives by, if you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. My obedience to God's revealed will in his word. So keeping the commandments are one test, but how many of us are clever? When it comes to sin, I think we're all a little too clever, right? The devil said to Eve, did God really say in Genesis 3.1? And that was how he was able to get to her. But we all, like the Pharisees, say that to ourselves. We say, like the rich young ruler... He claimed, oh, all these I have kept from my youth. Matthew 18, 21, you remember the story? Well, okay, Jesus knew his heart. He said, okay, give away all your money and follow me. And he went away sad because he had a lot of wealth and he wasn't going to give it up. Greed is idolatry. His riches were his idol. He was an idolater. He hadn't kept the Ten Commandments. He didn't love God. He loved his wealth more. We all can be like that a little bit. Oh, I have kept all the commandments since my youth. I'm doing well. And we don't have Jesus standing beside us to say, oh yeah, give up all your wealth. Wait a minute, wait a minute. No, 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 no. But we don't have that. But we can all be like that. So God gives us the obvious John here. God through John gives us a very obvious but a very hard test. The hard test of our loves really helps to show whether our love is genuine. How many of us can be closet hypocrites at times? We say one thing in public, but in private, in our heart, we know we don't believe that. We don't follow that. We don't do that. We hide secret sins. Nobody knows but us and God. But we don't share it. And we think, I'm good. I'm okay. I can have confidence, but then we're afraid because our love is not complete. It has not been perfected. How many of us have idols in our heart, the things that replace God in our life? You know, we all do that. So he gives us a much harder test. Show me your love for God, whom you can't see, who you can't touch, who doesn't actually speak to you to tell you directly you're not loving me. We don't have Jesus there to say, oh yeah, do this. Show me your love for God whom you can't see by loving that unlovable Christian sitting right next to you. Love must be sincere. Little children, let us love in word, not in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. First John 3.18 
Well, John called us in verse 17 to love sincerely as well, or to be as he is in John 17. He called us to be as he is. And we should be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. We and everyone else can see our love for God by the way we love the brother or sister next to us, particularly the unlovable one. If we can't generally love that brother or sister whom we see, how can we claim to love God whom we can't see? It's easy to love a brother or sister on the other side of the world. Send them $5 a month. That's love. That's not what he's talking about. How do we love the people around us who are our brothers, our family members in Christ? That's the test. How do we know that God has first loved us? Because we now love. How do we know we love? Well, by obedience and especially to the command of loving our brother. Because God loved us, elected us, converted us, gave his spirit to us, and is continually transforming us, we now lead a very different life than we did before if we are a believer. That life should be characterized by love for God and love for everything that bears his image, especially the brethren being renewed in the image of God as we are. Seeing this love in us, we can have greater confidence in the coming judgment, greater confidence in approaching God in prayer. We are in God and God is in us and we will be with him forever in paradise. We don't need to flinch. We don't need to shrink back. We don't need to hide in the bushes as Adam and Eve did. If we have God's Spirit in us and are living our life right and are not, not, not sinless and pure, but repentant and seeking forgiveness, then we can have that confidence in Him. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You have given us your spirit, that our life has been transformed. But we need, Lord, that reminder to examine ourselves and our hearts towards you and towards one another to see if we are truly loving and to be repentant and seek forgiveness because you have promised if we repent and seek your forgiveness that you're faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we ask, Lord, that you teach us day by day to walk closer to you, to live a life of sacrificial love for one another and for you, that we might know and have confidence that you love us and that your love is in us and that you abide in us and that we abide in you and we will be with you forever. We pray this for Je in Jesus' name. Amen.